Hello, and welcome to Found, TechCrunch's podcast where we get the stories behind the startups. I'm your host, Becca Skutak, and I'm joined, as always, by my fabulous co-host, Dominic. Hey, Dom, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm doing well. Dom is calling in from sunny Florida, so I definitely am a bit jealous that I am not somewhere that is quite so warm. No, it's sunny and it's hot. I think I went outside yesterday and, like, the ground, it it was so hot. I couldn't touch, like, I had no shoes on. I was getting a package and my feet hurt. I was like, I cannot be out here. Ugh, a beautiful sign for summer to come. But looking at the show that we have today, in the meantime, we're talking to Dr. Stacy Blaine, the co-founder and chief science officer of Concarlo Therapeutics, which is a preclinical biotech company whose mission is to dramatically improve outcomes for patients who have drug-resistant cancers. Hey, Stacy, how's it going? I'm great. How are you doing today? Doing well, enjoying the nice spring weather we're having in New York. So, yeah. Doing yes, well. I am in New York as well, and it is another gorgeous day. I hope we keep stringing them together. Yeah. Well, I'm super excited to have you on the show today to talk about Concarlo Therapeutics. What might make the most sense to get started is maybe if you just want to tell us about the company. Sure. So we are a preclinical stage, which means we don't have any products yet in humans, um, oncology company. And we are developing what we think are transformative therapies for drug-resistant cancers. So what that means are cancers that have already been treated by the standard of care therapies, but become resistant to those and then become a problem for those patients. And so we're offering new um, alternatives for these different types of cancers. Particularly, we're focusing initially on the breast cancer space, so triple negative breast, as well as HR, hormone receptor positive breast cancer. And there's a large population, about 40,000 women in the U.S. alone become resistant to standard of care and then have no other options. And so we want to bring this new transformative option to those patients. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, just because it sounds like breast cancer might have been a easy choice of where to start just based on the data that you just listed. And I'm curious if that is the case or if there was some sort of picking and choosing on where you guys were going to focus first. That's a great question because our therapy hits, we drug a master regulator that controls the activity of CDK4, 6, and 2, which are really the main drivers of all cancers and all resistance. So we do have applicability in numerous tumor types, Mm -hmm. but we started in the breast cancer space because now about seven years ago, a new class of drugs was approved called the CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs like Ibrantz, Fresenio, Kisqually, and those are great drugs. They are approved in the metastatic breast cancer space, and they essentially extend the progression-free window. So that means a, a woman or a man is in the remission state for a longer period of time. The problem is we know that essentially almost all of those patients, 100%, will become resistant with time, mm. and they become resistant because this other protein CDK2 gets turned on. And so we have to drug that. And we are creating the first triple CDK4, 6, and 2 inhibitor. And so breast cancer was the natural choice because this was a very clear understanding about how those patients became resistant and why we needed to drug these three kinases in concert. And that's sort of our initial proof of principle, so to speak, that this will work and then we'll expand into other tumor types as we gain validation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what inspired you to launch the company? 
Oh, so I have been studying the protein uh, that we target, which is called P27. And it is, as I said, the master regulator of these three main drivers. I've been studying that protein for well over 25 years. Since it was originally discovered at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, I started what's called my postdoctoral training. I just got my PhD and then do another period of training. And I was the first postdoc in the door to work on P27. I then continued. I got my own lab eventually, um, now 20 years ago, and I continued studying P27. And then in the teens, we figured out how P27 was really controlling the activity of these three really important kinases. And I started the company in 2017 to leverage our basic understanding of this process. We figured we could turn this into a novel way to inhibit these three really high-profile kinases. So I am a, you know, a professor. I was an academic and always assumed I would be an academic, but by the same token, I'd been studying the same protein for 25 years. And even really quickly after we started working on it, we realized the potential. And so we started thinking this could be, and then we finally figured out how it could be. It made sense to start the company. And for me personally, it's been, you know, a long journey from here's a protein that was just discovered to here's the ability to drug and target this protein to actually change patient outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I guess following up on that, because you ha- come from an academic background. And so what was it like turning your passion into kind of a business? And what were some of the highs and lows of, you know, translating that? That's a great question. I mean, the highs are in academia. We live in a little bit of an ivory tower and we're not, we explore the mechanisms about how to make drugs, but we don't actually understand all of the deep additional roles and additional duties that have to be performed to actually get a drug into the clinic. And so for me, it was a huge professional development journey, learning about, you know, you have to make a drug stable. You have to be able to ship the drug. You have to be able to package the drug. You have to show that it's non-toxic in this species and that species. And so How thrilling to sort of open this door to this whole other world of science and science professionals that I had had no access to before. So that was amazing. That was a real high. You know, the low is that it's difficult to raise money as, you know, anyone, but also I think academics sometimes have a little bit harder time. You know, I have a huge Rolodex of other academics, you know, directors of cancer centers, clinicians, but I didn't really know people that worked at VC funds. I didn't really know anyone that that had the money. I knew how to get grants, you know, right? I would have been very successful at getting grants in the academic world, R01s and things like that, but I didn't know how to, you know, pitch to VC. So I had to learn all of that. But I think at the end of the day, the commonality between academia and industry is the vision, is this desire to do something, you know, to think really hard and change patient outcomes. And that should be in academia. And for me, it always was. And so it really is the natural place that I was supposed to be is, you know, actually put my money where my mouth is and actually try to do this. It was actually the NIH that I sent a grant in to the NIH, an R01 grant in the Academic Senate, and the grant got trashed. And I called my program officer and I said, this is a great project. What are you talking about? And he said, oh, it's a great project, but you want to make a drug in AIM-3 and you're an academic. You can't make a drug. Start a company, get an SBI or grant, make a drug. That's how you have to do it. So it has been a lot of learning, but it's amazing to keep learning, particularly at this stage of my career. Mm-hmm. And thinking back to that moment where that grant did get rejected and you maybe had a realization that 
this needed to be a company and it couldn't stay in the academic lab setting. What was going through your mind during that time and sort of almost this like push that you almost have to start a business if you want to keep working on this? That's such an interesting, I don't know, fork in the road, I guess. Yes, I think that's exactly. Well, what was going through my mind was I was really mad. I mean, this was a great project and I couldn't believe that the NIH wasn't going to fund this. And so once I realized why they were going to fund that, okay, that was the first sort of karmic push. The issue is as a scientist, right? I think we're supposed to be really open and looking at the data. And so I had several other karmic pushes, right? We had patented this technology and the tech transfer office of my university sort of took me out to meet a couple of VCs. And I thought, oh, this is great. They'll give me money and I'll go back to the academic lab and do the work. And so the VC said, no, no, we would start companies and do this. And I was like, oh, okay. And they said, if you want to do that, you should start a company. So that was sort of the second karmic push. And I'd say the third one was because I was kind of mad about the grant, I applied kind of on a whim to this program that was in New York City, the New York Economic Development Program, which would help you write that SBIR grant. And I got accepted. So suddenly all these sort of forces were happening. I also had, you know, I didn't know anything about cap tables or addressable markets, but I knew someone that did. So he joined as a co-founder. I didn't know anything about paying rent or getting insurance for employees, but a really good colleague of mine, friend of mine, who was a fractional COO, she did. So she joined as a co-founder. Then we had an incubator on our university property. Okay, great. I could start the company in the space. And the last piece was I had a graduate student who was graduating from my lab and he wanted, didn't want to do a postdoc. He wanted to go and start up. So he went and worked at the company. So all of these things happened that pushed me that really sort of said, okay, this is what you're supposed to do. And I think that is, you know, the advice I would give to anyone when you see these karmic pushes as a scientist or as anyone, you need to recognize that they're actually pointing you in the next direction. And I'm so happy that I did, even though, you know, it's very hard. I could have just stayed doing the same old, same old, writing grants and doing work. But the chance to take our technology and see it all the way to patients That's really thrilling and really important and really why many of us get into science in the first place. No, that is just a category of startup I just find infinitely fascinating. The concept of like taking something out of the lab and really pushing it so it can have a real commercial outcome or real impact on patients or whoever this scientific area is going to impact. But I'm curious if you want to talk a little bit about that journey and what it's like going from working on this in a lab. Like you said, you've been studying in this area for more than a couple decades and actually then transferring that into something that could be a startup and something that could be a company that could kind of grow and scale from that research. Yes. I mean, when we started, it was really sort of an idea on a piece of paper, right? We thought if we could do this, this would be really interesting. And we didn't really know all of the detailed steps that had to happen that you needed to deliver it. And we had to track that delivery. So we needed bioanalytical assays developed. We didn't realize that we needed it to be stable for X amount of months because it had to be shipped to patients. You know, we just didn't know that. But what we did was surround ourselves with people that did know all these things. And so reaching out and building a team 
of people both that worked at Concarlo in-house as well as finding consultants and advisors and scientific advisors, business advisors. I mean, that was a really a big part of our journey was finding people that had been there, done that. Mm-hmm. I think the difference when you're an academic spin out, you know, I think it's pretty rare that people do what I do, that they sort of leave that academic world and go to this world is we have to build those pieces in the team, but we bring that vision and passion. Whereas a lot of other startups are, you know, a serial entrepreneur comes in, he or she has done this many times. And that's amazing as well. But the vision is different, right? This Mm -hmm. is what I've been thinking about for, as you said, many decades makes me feel a little bit old. But, you know, my one little small claim to fame, I guess, is I probably know this one target better than anyone and have thought deeply about how these proteins move around in the cell. And if this, then this. And that's, I think, a really good way of starting this business. But then having to be receptive and recognizing that I needed to bring in development people and director of CMC and, you know, peptide people and all of the people I needed to surround myself with and build into the company that would bring all these different domain expertise. And that is exciting, but you have to be really open to do that. You have to relinquish the reins a lot and say, I don't know this, but you do. And I'm going to learn from you and you're going to lead this. And, you know, I always say, I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. I want all of those different domain experts to be the smartest people in their different functionalities, because together we're going to be so much more than the sum of our parts. Mm -hmm. And that's something I've always found interesting about this space as well, is the concept of maybe someone who's the inventor, the scientist, the technologist, isn't necessarily going to be the best person to, say, lead a company on their own. Or as you mentioned, you just don't have those type of skills on building the network to raise money and stuff like that, because you just don't work in that space. Mm -hmm. And so thinking of how you've been chatting about it so far, like how important is it for startups in these more deep tech science areas to take this approach and sort of know that you don't have strengths in these areas and kind of build the team around that, bringing in that outside talent as you set up the business from the beginning? Yeah, I mean, you know, when I first started, I did hear criticism, like, you know, you don't know how to run a business. And, you know, you should bring someone else to run this business. And, you know, I think that we have dispelled that commentary, that sort of conversation. Because the beauty of being a scientist, right, is that we can learn a lot, right? That's really what we've been trained to do for decades, is look at a situation, figure out what's important, troubleshoot, and learn the appropriate things. And if you don't know that, find the other people. That is a huge skill that I've developed over my entire scientific career. And that's really what you need to do to run a company, right? And you don't have to know everything. You just have to be able to assess where the hole in your knowledge base is in the company and plug that hole in with the most appropriate talent. And I think the other thing that scientists as leaders bring is that we're really used to this collaborative situation. Mm -hmm. We're used to talking things through, really deciding things together. You know, we're not, it's my way or the highway. It's show me the data. Let's assess the data as a team, whether that's financial data, that's strategic data, that's scientific data. That's what we do. And in that sense, I think we're actually really well suited for this role because that's what you're doing leading a small company. Is this a good use of my funds? Is this good value? How are we going to position ourselves for the FDA? How are we going to position ourselves here? And it's 
constantly assessing the current data that you have and making the appropriate decisions based on that data. And that's what we do. You know, I don't hear that conversation anymore. And the other thing is, as a startup, you really are still, hopefully, so dependent on the mechanism, right? You're still trying to create a product or products that are based on fitting into something in to address a particular scientific problem. So that is, again, a real skill that a scientist can bring to the table. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I, I have a follow-up question to that. So I'm, I'm really intrigued because you are in the deep tech space, kind of. And so what has it been like navigating a company like this as a woman, especially where, you know, venture capitalists have a reputation, but then also how does it compare with how you navigate your academic career as a woman? Yeah, so those are great questions. Look, the bottom line is, as you know, there are just considerably fewer women in biotech and definitely in the VC world. I think it's pretty frequent that I am the only woman in the room or the only woman on the Zoom in the Zoom boxes. And that's that's an issue, I think, for across the space. And that's been hard, right? Particularly if someone comes into the room to hear our pitch and they're already a little bit biased because they know that I'm not a serial entrepreneur or I don't have an MBA and I'm a woman. I do think that puts us at a disadvantage frequently. But I'm also going to say that that disadvantage works for women in academia. I mean, there is a problem with women in academia. You know, we have a stat in the United States that we graduate with PhDs, equal numbers of men and women. So we do have gender parity and that demonstrates that women are just as capable and just as interested in going into deep science. But that number drops off very rapidly. And the number of tenured faculty women in the sciences in the United States is significantly lower. It's about 30%. And that's a problem. So what happens to it? How is the environment not conducive for women to stay in this field, which clearly they have the aptitude for, and that needs to be addressed? So I was used to that when this sort of gender disparity that exists in the VC world because it exists in academia as well. Mm -hmm. And sort of pulling on that thread a little further, what was fundraising like? So I know you mentioned some VCs are coming in with this bias, but I'm sure some people were obviously on board with what you guys were doing. So how would you describe the process so far? Well, you know, we raised some seed money and, you know, a fair amount. We raised about $10 million over a few years. And now we're raising our first Series A fund, not the Perhaps not the greatest time to be raising Series A money, but it is what it is. And, you know, I'd say in general, everyone buys into the target and says, you know, they recognize the need and the desire to drug CDK-462. They also recognize that historically, that has been very difficult to do to achieve that goal by traditional mechanisms, right? We've been trying for 40 years to create small molecule kinase inhibitors against CDK-2 unsuccessfully. Like everything that we have brought to everything that people have brought in the field to the clinic has actually met with, you know, adverse effects. And there are no clinical approved CDK2 inhibitors. So we're taking a really different approach. And I think people are really interested in that. But we do also hear, I love your approach, but I really like to see some human data, right? You know, it makes total sense to me, but I really want you to actually drug this target first and show me it's tolerable and and show some early readouts of efficacy. And so that's hard as an early stage company, right? We need to raise the money to do that human trial. 
And so we just have to keep talking to different species and different partners and, and try to find people in our journey. But I think that what keeps us going is the recognition that the field is really recognizing these are the targets you have to drug, right? And that we as a field have spent 40 years drugging. You know, we got really good at making small molecule kinase inhibitors, and we're really awesome at making antibodies against the cell surface. But now we have to take alternative approaches to drug a lot of these targets that we know are really high value, but are not amenable to those two approaches that are harder to drug. And that's what P27 is. And so, you know, I hear people every now and then, like, we're going to create this platform and find all these new targets. Well, it's 2023. We know most of the targets. Mm. We just have to invest in the innovative technologies to go after those targets that we know are important, but are difficult to drug. And that's really where we set in. So, you know, we have a challenge, right? So I'm, you know, not a serial entrepreneur of going after a, a target that has not been drugged before, even though it's in a very well-validated pathway. And we're using a less traditional approach. So, you know, there's lots of things that can give a VC pause, but we hope that we will be able to convince them and, and say, think about the world. What would the world look like if we're successful? We could actually deal with the resistance at C, not only in the presence of the branches, but also in the presence of the RAS inhibitors or the RAP inhibitors or the EGFR inhibitors. And that is the real power that a sort of cleaning up what precision oncology leaves behind. And we hope that we can convince VCs that this is the next step in the precision medicine journey. I'm so interested in that they were surprised you didn't have like human trial data raising seed money. I feel like that stuff is usually later down the road, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Yeah, no, we were able to raise seed money, but now we're raising our Series A. Oh, gotcha. Now we're hearing, you know, we really want you to de-risk this target. But, you know, it's expensive to get to a human trial and to run that human trial. So we do need to raise that Series A money to do that work. So that is a, a comment that we're hearing. Mm -hmm. When are you hoping to enter uh, human trials? Yes. So we are just finishing up what is called EMC. So actually the manufacturing of the drug. And with that, then we'll move into IND enabling studies, sort of put our whole package together for FDA approval. And then we hope to actually dose our first patient in about 18 months. Hmm. And that's an aggressive timeline, but it, and it's also dependent on raising the funds to finish the work that I'm describing. But we would like to get the IND and actually run that phase 1A trial to show that the drug is tolerable, as well as design that trial so that we can get early readouts of response, show that the drug got delivered to tumor and then it actually turned off its target. And so that would be the real validation and we really sort of rip the Band-Aid off on the whole concept of targeting this very transformative target, P27. And we're going to take a quick break from our chat with Stacy to hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we're going to be covering how Stacy uses her experience as a teacher to help with fundraising and how she thinks about failure when solving such a crucial problem like this. So in terms of speaking to VCs, I'm assuming that you, of course, targeted select VCs to pitch to, but did you still have kind of a hard time explaining the science to them versus like when you're writing an academic grant? Was there kind of a challenge in explaining what your company is to them? Well, I 
think that we did a pretty good job at that, right? And so part of it is, you know, I have been in the classroom for over 20 years and teaching. I run the medical block at our medical school. And so, you know, I've had to learn how to explain these concepts, these pretty complex concepts to medical students, particularly first year medical students who are, you know, I sort of just say they're really, they're really smart lay people. They don't know a lot about this when they come in. And one of the things that I think really helps in the ability to explain these concept concepts is to try to relate it to things in someone's common life. So we we talk about Uh, the target that we're drugging is really at the bottom of what I call the oncogenic funnel. And so by that, I mean, it's the signals that go from the cell surface through the cytoplasm all the way to the nucleus. And that we as a field target at the top of the funnel and we target at the middle funnel, but we want to target at the bottom of the funnel. And the same way you think about a water funnel, if you were blocking the water flow, it's a lot easier to pinch off the narrow end of the funnel than to block the top or the middle. And that's what we're doing, right? And so I think that resonates with people. And that's sort of the challenge. And the the exciting part is, and that's sort of part of my personal mission, right? Which is explaining and, and getting people to understand our vision and where we fit into the scientific pathway. No, it's so cool to hear that you think being a professor has sort of helped you in aspects of this journey so far. I'm curious if you think there's anything else you can take away from having that experience that's helped you be a better startup founder. Well, I mean, you, you know, if someone says, oh, you don't have any experience, you know, running a company, but that's what you do as a professor, right? Mm -hmm. You write a grant, you get a big amount of money, and then you have to budget that money, right? You can't spend it all in the first couple months because that money might have to last one or two years. You hire people, you have to have those people create a work environment that helps those people achieve their personal best so that they're productive and contributing to the project. And so, you know, that's pretty simple. And then you have to report, right? You have to actually go back to the people that funded you, whether that's the NIH or a philanthropic grant organization and say, this is what I did. This is what I achieved. We have to write papers that are then reviewed by our peers. So you could sort of say that's analogous to selling your story to a VC. You know, there's a lot of commonality about that. Running a business, I was sort of running a small business for 20 years as a professor. The difference is I didn't have to, you know, pay the electric bill, but I did still have to constantly be raising money to do the work in the academic setting. And so that seems very similar. And so, again, you're, you are bringing those past experiences into the current state and you should be learning and using those as stepping stones to be better in your, in your new role. Mm-hmm. And AI has been all the like the new hottest thing right now. I just want to know, does your company use AI at all or are there plans to use AI in the future? Yes, absolutely. And I think that what I, one of the things that I think is so funny is that we, as a field, we get a buzzword and then everyone wants to do it. And so you got to really like, you know, tease apart, what are you going to actually do with that? But what we do is we have a peptide-based drug. That means it's a piece of biology and it's based on a naturally occurring protein. And one of the things that we would like to do, and that will be our lead, but we'd like to create our second gen and our third gen products using AI and the power of, you know, machine learning to mix a lot of amino acids around and sort of do that high powered, you know, uh, changing 
making the protein smaller, making the protein different, making it more stable, you know, trying to select for different functionalities and doing it in the machine learning speed. And so we do, we are starting to think about that and looking for partners to do that work. We also have a second asset, which is a small molecule. So much smaller compound, it's a little bit of chemistry and not a biology that binds to the same target and using from our initial leads going back and now using machine learning to try to improve those and, uh, you know, try to accentuate certain characteristics that we want to have in our compound. So we are starting to get into that space as well. And kind of going off of that, thinking about sort of all the different directions you guys can take the research that you guys have already done and sort of the progress you've already made, how big of a market is this? Like, how far could this go and sort of how long could this branch out from the original research that you had before launching the company? Well, you know, in oncology, there are these master regulators. And so if you are successful at drugging a master regulator, then you can really think quite broadly, right? Because the common feature of all cancer cells and all tumors is their ability to divide uncontrollably, right? They lose the normal regulation that keeps these cells in check. So you have lots of cells in your body and every single day, every second, every cell in your body is making a decision. Should it divide or should it not divide? Alternatively, be quiescent. And some cells are dividing all the time, right? This would be the lining of your intestine. Those cells are very short-lived, so they constantly have to birth new cells. Some cells only divide when they receive the appropriate stimuli. So for example, your liver is a quiet, quiescent organ, but if it gets damaged from, let's say, excessive alcohol or even physical damage, those cells will receive a signal, start dividing. And then when they restore the shape of the liver and the size, they'll stop dividing. And some cells almost never divide, our cardiac lineages, our neurons. And in fact, if they do start to divide, that can actually be catastrophic and cause, for example, neurodegenerative diseases. So these are the proteins that control this, CDK4, 6, and 2, and their regular P27. Think about them sort of as like a unit. While we're focusing on one tumor type, we can think about it broadly. And we have evidence in pancreatic cancer, non-small cell lung cancer, endometrial cancer, ovarian cancer, that targeting these proteins can block the proliferation, the growth of these cells. So think about that broadly. And then also, as I said, about the resistance in many of the FDA-approved therapies. But then also think even further, right? I said that some cells like our neurons aren't supposed to divide. But if they start divide inappropriately, they undergo something called death. Uh, apoptosis. And so that we think is one of the causes of neuronal degeneration, such as seen in diseases like Alzheimer's. So could you use a drug like ours, which is called IPY, to stop the inappropriate proliferation in neurons as they're about to divide and undergo death in degenerative diseases? You know, thinking broadly, thinking about our vision, a therapy that controls and blocks inappropriate cell proliferation has really a lot of applicability across both the oncology space as well as in other spaces. So yeah, we have we have a lot of work to do. Yes. And you, I'm, I'm like amazed and you are so inspiring. And I'm just so interested, like what got you initially interested in wanting to be a scientist? And, you know, of course, oh. you know, doing academia, but like, why did you want to be a scientist? What was the moment maybe when you were growing up or like what led you to this? You know, I 
don't remember a time when I didn't want to be a scientist, right? Like my earliest memories are wanting to be a scientist. And I do think that I was very fortunate to have great science education, even from, you know, the kindergarten age, like Miss Hartsook, who was my like first grade teacher, my science teacher, you know, I just loved it. And I just asked a lot of questions, but I was the kid that took the frog home at the end of the summer and kept dissecting it all summer and, you know, irradiated fruit flies in the back of my high school class. And when I was in high high school, I did have an amazing science teacher, Dr. Crabtree, who was the first time I'd ever met anyone that had a PhD and just did science. So, you know, I sort of like hand raised, that's for me. And then I went to Princeton University because they had a brand new molecular biology program. Most of the other schools at that time just had biology, but this was the study of DNA and this was the study of like the cell. And, you know, I went there and it was just as exciting as I thought it would be. You know, then I started working in a lab. So I always wanted to be a scientist and assumed that I would always just be in academia. You know, I went and got my PhD at Columbia and then said, okay, well, I'm going to stay and I'm going to be like my boss and I'm going to, you know, study really hard and I'm going to become like he is. And that's what I assumed I would do. So this is really, you know, being in biotech is a new thing for me. And I would urge, you know, any academics that are listening to this to actually learn more about biotech because there should be more synergy between the two. When I started my company, I did get a fair amount of pushback from other academics. And the comment was, yeah, why are you doing this? Why do you think you can cure cancer? Why do you think that your discoveries are important? And my pushback to them was, well, why don't you? Right. You've been writing this in your R01 grant. The first line is, you know, this might be a new therapy for the treatment of cancer. Did you not believe that? Because I did. Right. When I wrote that in my grant, I believed that. And we got to change that. Right. If the goal of most biomedical research is to actually change outcomes for human patients, that has to be a really strong goal, both in academia as well as in biotech. And as I said, there needs to be more synergy between the two. Uh, When I started the company in 2017, I felt like I was, you know, reinventing a lot of wheels. There weren't a lot of programs or accelerator. You know, I couldn't find a lot of things. So I had to learn a lot of things on my own. But now I have seen, particularly in New York City, which is becoming a biotech hub, there are a lot of other programs to encourage this sort of transition and to help make, you know, entrepreneurs out of academics. So I think that needs to keep happening because we really do need both ways of thinking to really change the field. And I think maybe a good question to wrap up on is something I'm always curious about for entrepreneurs building in this space. Obviously, you're building in an area that touches people who live with cancer, drug-resistant cancer nonetheless. And you talk to a lot of startup founders who are trying to innovate how you file an insurance claim or how you find sales prospects, which I'm not saying are not important, but you're kind of comparing apples and oranges at the end of the day and sort of does that ever weigh on you, the fact that you are building in a category where it really is important for it to succeed more so than, say, another way to run payments at your company sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, something that you have to reconcile, right? And my husband says, you know, it's easier to raise money for an app to have a hamburger delivered to your door than to raise money for therapeutics. And that's probably true. And and part of it is the scale, right? You know, we're raising $36 million to, you know, get all the way through our clinical trial. That's a big number. But 
by the same token, I do think, you know, we do live in an economy where if there really is no need for that new insurance policy, then it probably won't get funded and it probably won't come into fruition. Or if it does, it won't do well. So, you know, there is that selection there. The issue is that you have to, at least in the early stages, which is where we still are, where we're still selling, you know, we're not selling the product yet. We're selling a vision and we're selling the team. I hope there are people and VCs and investors that are still recognizing recognizing that if we want to change outcomes, you have to take chances, right? That is the definition of science. We do not know. And we have to, you know, frequently take 10 chances to have three things work. Those three things that work will pull the entire field forward, right? And we will learn from why those things worked and why those other things didn't, and we will all be better. And that's the same case in academia. You know, I, when I first started my lab, like the funding out of the NIH was, the rock bottom. And that's a problem because a healthy biomedical economy is 30, 40% of all grants get funded because they're great grants. Not that they're going to work, not that the answer will be what we think it is, but you have to throw a lot of spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks. And so do good science, have it be based in, you know, fact, good mechanism of action, strength, great team. It still may not give us exactly the outcome that we anticipated but we have to try. And if we become too reserved as a field and only bet on the safe things, we're never going to have those big revolutionary innovative moments. And I think that we have been in the last few years, perhaps in a little bit of a stagnant, right? We have so many companies going after immune oncology. That's great, but we need to start differentiating that, right? We have 5,000 clinical trials going on right now for IO drugs. They're not differentiated enough, right? Like we need to consolidate. We need to say what is going to pull the field forward. So that would be, it doesn't discourage me because it is what it is. And that's one of the things you also learn about science, right? You do a really good experiment. You may hope for a certain result, but if the experiment is a good experiment and it says that you were wrong, that's still a good experiment and you should still learn from that. So that's where we come in. We have a great story. We have a great target. We have a great team. We can do what we say we're going to do. And if we are right, which we think we are, we will transform this space. So I hope that VCs, investors, people out there will be willing to take that chance on an innovative therapy that could just you know, change the dynamic for this space. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Stacey. This has been a pleasure. Yes, thank you. Great question. Thank you so much. Well, that was our conversation with Stacy And Dom, what did you think? I really liked it. I thought it was really interesting. What about you? Yeah, no, I definitely thought that was interesting. And I'm always just so fascinated about biotech companies or sort of any company that gets built off of research or starts in that kind of a lab setting, because I know you hear all the time that there's science that could be behind so many great companies or so many biotechs that never makes it out of the lab, because that's a hard process. And not all scientists want to be entrepreneurs. So I thought that part of the story was interesting about how she wasn't planning to be an entrepreneur and then was just applying for another grant, keep doing the research. And she honestly got pushed into starting the company because they were like, this is beyond academic research, which I've never 
heard before from one of these kind of companies. I know, right? I totally loved it because, you know, academics are so brilliant and they have all of this research. It makes total sense that maybe more of them should be entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of loved how she became it. And she had all the research, the knowledge. She, you know, figured out how to put it into a company. And now it's, you know, it's out here. And I think it sounds like she knew from the beginning some of the potential pitfalls that happen in these types of situations. Like there's a lot of talk about how, oh, the inventor or the scientist, the more heavy science person behind some of these companies isn't generally the best person to be, say, the CEO. And I think Stacy kind of knew that off the bat, it sounds like. And she built that team up around her of people who could fill those gaps that she didn't have as far as running a company. It's just so interesting to hear from someone outside the industry being like, yep, no, I knew that was going to be a problem before I even started, and I solved it before it even became one. Yeah. Because I feel like you don't always see that sort of like really clear-cut pre-planning. She was prepared, definitely. She definitely did her research. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what did you think about what she was talking about related to the fact that she actually thinks scientists and former academics make really good founders and sort of are good at going out to pitch VCs? Because I thought that was cool. I think that they do. I think more of them should. I don't know why. I don't know if there's some beef between, I don't know, entrepreneurship and academia. But I definitely have always felt that the two professions, I guess, or these two walks of life should definitely collaborate more. The biggest example I can think of is like even with AI and stuff. We definitely need more humanities and sociologists in this discussion. It can't just be founders and people with, you know, we need more research and stuff behind it. And so I definitely totally believe that there are more scientists, more of these professors out there who totally can be incredible founders and entrepreneurs. I don't know what is stopping them. I'm sure there's a lot stopping them. But (laughs) if you're listening, this is a call out. We're ready for you. I know. And what she said about the managerial skill side of it is something like I had never thought of. But then the more I thought about it, I'm like, well, yeah, like managing people, you're applying for money for these grants, like your expectation setting, you're doing all of this in sort of the academic setting to begin with. And I know from speaking to my friend who works as a professor and is sort of like deeply enthralled in the academic space, she's like, academics are crazy. Like that whole world seems so buttoned up from the outside, but she's like, nope, you get the same personalities you find like with founders. Like it's like, no, you get a lot of people just like really passionate about what they're doing, which I mean, as far as startup founders goes, you want someone who's passionate about what they're doing. So I definitely see how it could lend better than maybe I thought of before. I know. I want some of the academic tea. I know she has stories. I also love that moment where I know a part of me was really worried. I was like, oh my gosh, like, how do you pitch this to investors? Is it going to be like high level science stuff? And she's like, I'm literally a teacher. Like I just, I teach people for a living. Of course I can break this down to a VC. And I was like, when you put it that way, it makes a lot of sense. Oh, I know. I know. Cause you always think some of these deep tech stuff is like harder to pitch, but then, I mean, sometimes I forget someone's like pointed out to me before they were like, well, where we're building a company that's like a deep tech climate company, we're pitching to deep tech climate investors who know know what we're talking about. And it's like, oh, right. Duh. Like, of course, you have to figure out how to read the room. So you don't want (laughs) to, you know, pitch the wrong investors to begin with. I know. So that makes a lot of sense. No, I'm. she was just so thoughtful in how she talked about the company, too. And when I asked that question about how does she feel that they're building a company that is not a sales prospect B2B software company, not that there's anything wrong with those for those founders that are listening, <laughs> but like this is a company where, say, maybe you have a drug-resistant 
cancer and you see that Con Carlo is like making strides here, like you want this to succeed so bad in a way that like no one would ever care that like we work survived. <laughs> so it's like, it seems like there's so much pressure and yet maybe it's just because she's been in the space for so long. She was just like, well, you kind of expect everything you go out to do is going to succeed, which I mean, I guess you would want that kind of optimism no matter what. Yeah, it's definitely a company that's kind of in it for the long term. Like it's a long mm-hmm. game. And especially investors obviously know that it's going to be a long process because I feel like there are things, there's like an instant gratification that comes, you know, Mm. you want a company and you want it to do really well immediately. You know, you want the sales, you want the Get that first customer. Exactly. You want it to just, you know, but with this, it's kind of like you want it to succeed. And that means she has to take her time. And that's going to take a long time. We don't know when the results of this are going to come out. But that also makes it really interesting and cool to kind of follow. I guess that's the research and the science behind it where you're just like, oh, this is so cool. This is science. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the one thing I wish I'd asked her more about is the timeline. Because I know compared to, say, like the rest of the startup realm, biotech and biotech flavored companies generally are on such a different timeline. Like a lot of them go public like post Series B or get acquired like before they're making any money. Which, I mean, a lot of startups also go public without making any money, but in a very different way. Um, but I wish I'd asked her. That's the only thing I wish I'd asked her more about is kind of like if they had already started thinking about that timeline. Because biotech companies, they usually keep the same team, but end up going public or exiting like a little earlier than some other companies do. Yeah. I also love how you just said biotech flavored. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, no, I don't know. Some companies are like, they're not biotech, but they're biotech flavored. It's like a you little know? biotech. Just a little taste a little of biotech. biotech. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. But overall, she was she was really cool. Mm-hmm. And I'm really excited to see what happens next. And I really, really hope that more academics enter into this field and space because there are so many amazing companies that can be started with more people like her entering. Mm-hmm. Especially because these people have the research, <laughs> the knowledge, you know, they're not just making things up. They have facts to back it. Or, you know, and you just you test things out. It'd be cool. We need more collaborations. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. Hopefully, Stacey can help blaze that path. <laughs> Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter Becca Skutak, alongside senior reporter Dominic Majori Davis. Found is produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Our illustrator is Bryce Durbin. Found's audience development and social media is managed by Morgan Little, Alyssa Stringer, and Natalie Kreisman. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week.